Welcome to the Worlds of Maybar audiobook podcast. Previously on Echelon, Nathan traveled to a world that represents what Earth is supposed to currently look like. Paul was in pursuit of his murderer. Aramis killed a dangerous granite shark, and Hemstock's mayor tried to bully a power play with Soma. And now, chapter four of Echelon. You can't just ignore me. Soma stared at the mayor with her hands in her pockets and her face blank with Sorensen at her side. The mayor was angry. Soma's eyes were cold. This is your play. Disclose one of my crimes to my superiors, the one that you think they won't mind as much about. Then you threaten to tell them my real crime, the one I haven't done yet. The mayor folded his arms and paced around the conference room. You don't know anything. We know about you. Come here from the land of the tragic dead, where they're all stuffy and backwards. The most advanced thing you have over there is radio. You all learn about sex and violence from our shows. Then judge us because we understand it better than you. Not everyone has to subscribe to your Victorian morality, Aleph Dan. There were shadows moving across the curtains surrounding the conference room. Then the doors on both ends burst open and five police officers poured in from each, all aiming at Soma and Sorensen. About half held cartridge firearms, the others holding HVMP particle guns. The mayor put his hands in his pockets, relaxed, and smiled. I'd rather assist the assembly, keep you here to make it easy for them to arrest you. But I'm being generous and offering you a deal. You'll take my deal because it's a fair one. Just leave Hemstock exempt when you put your new laws in place. And I won't warn the assembly about it. And I'll let you leave so you can disappear. Bribe whoever needs bribing so that they don't arrest you for letting the fugitive go. Ah, so you already told them I let Sanchez go. The mayor nodded, his face red. Soma used to be very good at telling when people were lying to her. She had poor people skills, so it had been an invaluable consolation when she was a homicide detective. Ever since coming to Pan, however, she often found that she not only knew when people were lying, but she could guess why. You're afraid. Afraid of what? Your naive laws? Of course I am, Soma shook her head. I'm leaving. I would recommend that you continue to not tell the assembly anything about my supposed planned actions or supposed previous actions. That fugitive is more than just a rogue Aleph. They will kill anyone who knows too much. That may include knowing that I let him go. And, Soma said it loudly, but let the room hang silent a moment before she continued. And I'm not making any cities exempt. Not that you'd have to worry about it anytime soon. The mayor's eyes narrowed and he took a step toward her. Have you even seen any of the shows? Or have you only heard rumors of snuff films and of rich people hunting the poor for sport? Has anybody told you that most shows are nothing like that? Have you even seen an episode of The Lower Kingdom? 
I know someone is raped in the first episode. Sorensen frowned. Actually, the first episode of this season is when that happens. Soma turned to her. You watch it. Sorensen nodded, a tinge of embarrassment crossing her usually stone-like expression. It's very well written. The mayor clenched his hands into fists. Soma looked around at the police officers and their weapons trained on her. It wasn't surprising, but the mayor had probably heard a distorted version of her plan and thought she was going to crack down on all entertainment in general. Programs like Lower Empire will likely not be an issue, just so long they exercise some basic human rights when recording. I doubt they will kill any of their stars and then bring them back to life. Unlikely, Sorensen said, grinning just a little. This did not calm the mayor. Are you going to make Hempstock exempt? Of course not, Soma sighed. And I won't discriminate between cities, and I won't discriminate between shows that implement any sort of abuse of immortals. All distribution in Pan will cease, at least until I can find a way to stop the productions themselves. Abuse of immortals? Soma gestured at the door. We're done here. Soma took a step, but then the lights went dark. Soma cringed and hunched her shoulders as the air exploded around her in a dozen pops. Lifting her head back up, she saw a dozen bullets floating in the air. Five of the guards in the room, the ones holding particle weapons, were inspecting their guns trying to figure out why they hadn't fired, but then noticing that they were venting smoke. Hewn suddenly appeared from nowhere, having been standing right behind the mayor. Stealing Sanchez's invisibility gadget was already turning out to be a very useful move. He was holding the edge of that jagged, long, obsidian sword of his against the side of the mayor's neck. The face and shoulders of the mayor were illuminated as sickly green as the center of the blade glowed from within, from vines and spirals of green. The guards all around the room turned their guns to aim at Hewn, so he reached forward to grab the mayor's collar and press his sword harder against his neck. He looked around at the bullets still suspended in the air, smiling. Do you want me to kill them? I can send the bullets back just as fast as they left the guns. Sorensen tossed the EMP cylinder, now covered in frost and smoking with water vapor, onto the conference table. Soma looked at the mayor, who was white with fear, as his eyes darted from suspended bullet to suspended bullet. Soma picked one of the bullets out of the air and turned it over in her fingers. Are you stupid? You know bullets won't kill me. The mayor mumbled, Enough, Will. Soma's eyes narrowed a millimeter. What do you think I should do with you, Mr. Mayor? He didn't reply. Should I make an example of you? Should I kill you, then give a long speech to your vice mayor, telling him or her that they shouldn't threaten me? Or should I kill all of your staff, but let you live to ensure that you'll remember how cruel and merciless I am? The mayor stood there sweating and breathing, holding his hands up. Soma did not remove her gaze from him for what felt like a full minute. Then she turned to Hewn and shook her head. He nodded, and all the bullets dropped to the ground. The tension in the room dropped as well. Soma walked over to the mayor, not stopping until there was just a hand's breadth between their faces. That also meant Hewn's sword was now close to her cheek. Soma spoke in a loud whisper, which everyone in the room could hear clearly. I will not tolerate this adolescent nonsense. I'm going to release a report to the other mayors saying that you threatened to blackmail me with incomplete, inaccurate information. Everyone will know you're a liar. 
She turned to leave, Hewn and Sorensen following. I wasn't lying. The mayor's voice was calm and clear, as if he hadn't just been sweating and cowering back from her. I did tell them about you letting the fugitive go. They will be sending someone to arrest you, Aleph Dan. Soma's pace slowed for one step, then returned to its briskness. Then now you know I'm not afraid of them. Paul had tried using his nose to track down the gray man, but smell wasn't like sight or hearing. All he had were hints. And all the hints told him that the gray man hadn't gone far. Paul stood out in the field, in the dark, behind the neighborhood where he'd found the gray man, in view of the house where he'd dropped off the man he'd found being tortured. There was a police quad prop landed in front of the house, its blue strobes intermittently filling the dark desert with lightning-like illumination. Two police officers had entered the building a few minutes ago to talk with the people in there. Paul closed his eyes and relaxed, feeling the breeze shift a bit. He breathed it in, just a lingering reminder that the gray man had been here. Paul couldn't shake the feeling that he would be back soon. Paul opened his eyes as he heard someone walking toward him. It was a bulky police officer with her hand resting on the butt of her holstered pistol. Excuse me, sir. The family said you had something to do with the man who was kidnapped? Paul nodded. I'm working with the MOA. She narrowed an eye. Mind if I see your ID? Paul shook his head and reached into his pocket to pull out his temporary ID pen. It was black like an olive pan, but without the gold lines. From it popped up a hologram of his face. The officer took it from him and frowned. Hmm, it says here. The ground shook. Then two hands shot up from the ground in front of the officer, grabbed her ankles, and pulled down. She barely had time to shout in confusion as she sunk, as if the dirt had become water. Her descent stopped with just the top half of her head and her arms above the surface. Paul reached across to grab her hands and try to pull her up, but then two waves of dirt moved toward her from opposite directions. Paul looked at them, pulled up on the woman, but it all happened too fast. The waves struck the woman, and Paul's face was splashed with blood. The arms came loose from the crushed body in his hands. Gagging and feeling the compulsion to throw up, Paul dropped the arms and stumbled back. His heart was pounding. He looked around in every direction. A shallow ripple of earth rolled under his feet, in rhythm with the low laugh coming from no clear direction. Paul's fists clenched. He walked backwards, almost tiptoeing on the ground. He pulled the inhibitor injector out of his pocket and readied it in his hand as if it was a knife, as if it was his only defense. Then a hand shot out of the ground and grabbed his ankle, Panicking, he swung the injector down and stabbed the needle into the back of the hand. It let go of him and shivered. Immediately, Paul realized that, if he was moving around underground due to his powers, removing his powers meant he would be trapped down there. Paul had just killed him, essentially. That feeling of wanting to throw up returned with force. But Paul forced himself to breathe. He stumbled back as not one, but two people rose up out of the ground. 
a gray man was holding a gray woman in his arms. She coughed and gasped and collapsed to the ground as the gray man let her go. He wagged a finger at Paul. Quick thinking, but now you've used up your trump card. My turn. And he sunk back underground. Paul looked at the woman, balled up in a fetal position on the ground and still shivering. She had a bitter expression on her face as she looked up at him. There were two of them. That was why the Gammies could never catch this serial killer. Why it had been so hard for Paul to track him down. This woman was probably the Previed the man was bonded to because she was still gray-skinned even with the magic nullifier in her blood. Shackleton had said the gray man would turn back to human appearance after being injected. If he was a bonded human like he'd said he was. The woman smiled as she and Paul stared at each other for an uncomfortable length of time. He's going to kill you again. Hey guys, sorry about this chapter being so late. I was working full time and was moving out of an apartment I'd been living in for seven years, so my hopes to publish an episode during all that were wildly optimistic. But since this is a shorter episode, and since it's been two years since the last book, I figured I would take some time to break down the Prevede bond situation between Aramis and Paul, especially because it's so important to the story. If I had planned better, I would have explained this all earlier in the story itself, more organically. But that will have to wait for the print version of this book, unfortunately. Honestly, the issue is that Echelon was not originally intended to be a separate book. The new Aleph and Echelon are one big story. So, Echelon needs a little more engineering to make it stand alone as a separate book. So anyway, here's the issue. To save Paul from dying from a powerful poison, Aramis had to bond with him. The bond is an old ability Prevedes and Alephs have to basically enslave a person. It was a system established before the silencing when things on Maybar were... stranger. Similar to a vampire holding a familiar under their thrall, the subservient bondee must follow whatever instructions the bonder gives. However, the bondee must willfully consent for this bond to be formed. The trade-off for them is that they then share some of the supernatural powers of their bonder. This was why bonding with Paul allowed Aramis to save his life, because water pravids have incredible healing abilities. More important than the power sharing, though, the bondee can set three conditions on their superior in order to protect themselves from the orders of the bonder. But Paul, having gone through some experience that made him desire more powerful abilities of discernment, asked for the ability to smell out murderers. He had to give up two conditions to get this power. And he did this hastily because he knew that Aramis would never take advantage of her ability to order him using the bond. However, worried by Aramis's kindness and the way she overexerts herself to help people he considers dangerous, he used his remaining condition to make it so Aramis could not put herself in danger of being hurt by people. And as long as this condition holds, Aramis 
is under an equally powerful thrall to follow it. She cannot make dangerous speeches in front of the whole world, but she can hunt a magical monster shark. Because he said, in danger of people, not in danger of monsters. And she needed the granite shark's blood as part of her plan for how to get through the narthex, through the threshold hallway, and into Prometheus so that she can confront Paul and end the bond. So that should help a bit. Echelon is written and produced by me, Andy Wright. All music is from the album Into the Dark by The Restitution. The Worlds of Maybar podcast is hosted by the folks over at Anchor.fm. And, barring any more huge life changes, Chapter 5 will be out December 21st. Now, let's get back to the story. Wow, this is... This... This is crazy. Nathan found himself trying to make as little noise as possible as he and Bosco descended the spiraling staircase. After just one story's worth of descent, the stairwell had opened up into a huge chamber, a cylinder five or six stories tall and almost as wide. It felt like a crypt. Shafts of light came down from dozens of tiny windows in the stone ceiling, which Nathan hadn't noticed when he was outside standing on them. That one's you, said Bosco as he pointed at one of the 22 statues along the encircling wall, which rose up from the floor up to the ceiling, acting like pillars. The statue he pointed at was an idealized version of Nathan. Carved onto a weird shirt on the statue's chest was a simplified rendition of two people sitting on either side of a table. In the statue's hand, he held a book titled Diplomacy with... Leopold von Rank, as the author byline. Nathan's face scrunched up in wrinkles. Rank never wrote a book called Diplomacy. He wrote about diplomacy. Nathan looked around at the other statues. They were all the Ta, and all had the same funny shirts on, each with a different symbol. All were holding books. Most did not have an author byline on their books, though. Some of them, like Carini, were simple enough. She had an image of an arch and architecture on her book. Tanaka had a double helix and genetics on his book. The most mysterious one was Tezuka's, who had a pentagram symbol and had magic written on the book. That was particularly disturbing because Tezuka was the first person to die in Maybar. She had entered Maybar a few years before Nathan and had figured out a way to kill herself after just five years living here. She had done most of the work designing Ursi. She hadn't done anything related at all to magic, though, as far as Nathan could remember. Dawson's symbol was a sort of crown, and her book said morality, which Nathan found both humorous and infuriating. But as they continued down the spiral staircase, and the room turned around them over and over again, his eyes kept going to Shiro's statue. His book said neuroscience and his symbol was of the cerebral homunculus, of the hideous, giant-lipped, giant-handed monster shape that souls appeared as when represented in the assassin's monitoring grid. Interesting, Bosco said, but seemed to hesitate. This isn't mankind triumphing over religion. It's more recreating religion so that humans are the gods. Nathan considered this. 
Pretty much. Let's find Shiro as quickly as possible. I don't like being here. Well, I don't know if I believe all that, but a bullet to the head should still kill him. Paul frowned at the tall, powerfully built cop. He was entirely nonplussed by Paul's warnings of how dangerous the situation was. He apparently hadn't fought a bonded human before. Against Paul's advice, he had called in reinforcements. Not that reinforcements were bad, but they were just more people that didn't understand what they were fighting. Do you have just that bullet gun, or do you have a particle one, too? The cop shrugged. I have an MVMB carbine in the quad. More frustrating to work with than my sidearm, though. Paul folded his arms. He could try explaining to this guy that there was a chance, a slim one granted, that the gray man could control bullets with his stone powers. From what little Paul knew about Bondies, it made no sense that this guy was so powerful, but the fact still was that he knew very little. But this cop thought the burrowing underground was some sort of trick, despite the fact that his partner was now crushed underground, so he would have a really tough time believing in stopping bullets. I'd recommend you go get the carbine. The cop sighed and walked off. That left Paul standing alone behind the house with the stone pravied woman shackled up behind him in mazai cuffs. She was sitting cross-legged with her head drooped forward, a hood over it. The hood had a drawstring that partially tied around her neck to doubly make sure it wouldn't fall off. Cover the eyes had been the most enthusiastic comment made by Shackleton. Don't want another repeat of that nightmare in Pan that left them with that maniacal woman in charge. Paul had called him after catching the woman, asking for another set of Mazai bindings and power-disabling injections. The dose in the woman would only last about an hour, but Shackleton had said they couldn't get anything more to him for at least an hour and a half from now. His situation was too low priority. That left at least a half hour period where this woman would have her powers back, though would still be shackled up. But Paul had a feeling that the gray man was waiting for that, waiting for the dose to wear off before he tried rescuing his partner. It had been 20 minutes so far. 40 to go before the gray man would probably show up. 70 at least before real help would show up for Paul. We gave you a gift, said the woman through the hood, as soon as the footsteps of the cop had faded away. We chose you and cultivated your resurrection, and you repay us by siding with them? Paul turned to her. Cultivated? He was torturing me and trying to drive me insane. The only reason he killed me as quickly as he did is because he didn't think he could win me over to his dementia. She shook her head. He said what he said to let you feel in control. It was all a show. Paul didn't buy it. You two aren't working for Ursi, are you? She gave me similar instructions when I met her in Threshold. Tell the world that Aleph's are evil. Interesting coincidence. Ursi spoke to you? Her posture straightened out. She affirms what we told you, and you still betray all of us. What are you talking about? He tortured and murdered me. My girlfriend went crazy because of it. And then I fought through crazy mercenaries just to get back here. 
and you don't thank us for putting you on this path, do you? She coughed out a spiteful laugh. Maybe we have been wasting our time. Paul rubbed his temples, his head aching. He could tell her that he was only joining the DAC so he could change things, so he could be an influence from the inside, but he didn't need to justify himself to this psychopath. Did Ursi tell you to kill me or not? Her posture slouched again. I won't disrespect the goddess by lying and saying that she did. Paul rolled his eyes. The whine of a police quad rolled in from the south. It flew in low and fast, leaving a trail of swaying trees in its wake. Paul squinted as it tilted its props back, throwing wind toward him to slow to a stop in the air. The world engulfed in the roar of the four engines. The craft slowly lowered itself. Paul sighed, not expecting these guys to be any more helpful. And then, large rocks launched up through the air at the quad. One hit one of the four engines, smashing its blades to scrap metal and forcing the craft to hover lopsided in the air with only three rotors now working. It tried to lower itself slowly the rest of the distance to the ground, but another rock flew from another direction and smashed into the cabin. The craft went spinning through the air and smashed hard into the front of the house. Paul's hands shot up to his ears as the twisting of metal and wood filled the air, somehow exponentially louder than the whine of the rotors. Paul walked toward the house, not having any idea what to do. He wished he had a better weapon than a walking cane, but he had been so confident that he didn't want or need one when he'd been offered one back at the station. But he wasn't even sure what kind of weapon would be useful. He wasn't a true Pravid, so he couldn't use an element lock. He wasn't even sure if the carbine the cop said he was going to get would work on this guy. As Paul neared the house, two cops came out of its back door. The family, their faces covered in shock and confusion, looked out the windows at the cops as they looked around, one talking into his watch, the other looking around with his weapon out. The cop that had gone back for the carbine joined the other two, and the three of them stood back to back, weapons pointed out, scanning across the dark scene. The one with the carbine yelled over at Paul, Do you see anything? The moment he finished saying that, a statue grew out of the ground between them. It was a rough, human figure with arms outstretched, but it continued growing taller and taller, having an obelisk of earth instead of legs that continued lengthening until it was three stories tall. The police all took a step back away from it. The voice of the gray man echoed from the top of the statue. I'll spare these idiot sheepdogs if you promise to continue on the path I put you on. Paul was running out of patience. You are not in control here. The statue laughed. I'm not. Paul folded his arms. No, you're not. This isn't the way to bring down the Alephs. I've evaded the Alephs for years. They've become so desperate, they try to recruit one of my victims as some sort of bait or pawn to catch me. How am I not in control? Because I have your accomplice. Paul gestured at the bound-up woman. Even if you kill all of us and rescue her, they know your secret now. You won't be able to keep evading them now that they know that you've been using a partner. Finding one person is hard. Finding one of two people is a lot easier. No! The statue burst apart, revealing the gray man standing where the center of the dirt obelisk had been. He hugged himself, shaking, then screamed. 
Rocks and dirt rose up in the air all around, some of them shooting at the house, some shooting at the three police, some shooting at Paul. The sound of shattering glass filled the air as the rocks assaulted the house. Paul was battered back, but none of the projectiles hurt that much. He ran toward the police as quickly as he could, noticing that they were taking the hits badly and that one was already on the ground, bleeding from the head. Paul hunched over the one on the ground, letting his back take the hits instead. No! The gray man jumped to the ground, and the moment his feet touched the dirt, the cop Paul was shielding sunk into the ground. Paul thrust a hand at the ground, as if trying to press through it like water, but it was as hard and compacted as it had looked the moment before the cop had vanished. Paul stood up and returned toward the gray man. The gray man's eyes went wide, and now all rocks shot at Paul. Paul batted some away with his arms, took some of them to the body, but none slowed him down as he charged. The gray man ran backward, smiling with his mouth, though his eyes looked worried. Finally, Paul reached him and grabbed him by the collar. You're done. The gray man looked over Paul's shoulder at the cops, then smiled. Not yet. Paul heard screaming behind him and turned to see two walls of dirt slowly crushing the cops. Paul grabbed onto the man by both of his wrists and squeezed. I said stop. The man whispered, no. And the screaming stopped with a loud crunch. Paul squeezed the man's wrists tighter. The man's eyes widened and he gritted his teeth. But his mouth remained smiling even as he screamed in pain and his fingers jittered in agony. I said stop! The man took in a deep breath and laughed out. No! Four walls rose out of the earth, like four massive flower petals, with the house in the center. The house containing the man Paul had saved, with the family Paul had asked to help the man. The petals rose up and closed in and down, like a bloom in reverse. The house began to be crushed, more glass shattering, more wood snapping from strain, screams and crying from within. The man continued smiling, tears running down the sides of his face. Paul slammed him down with his back to the ground, his voice shaking with anger. You have to stop. The man shook his head, so Paul punched him in the face with all of the combined strength that both Ursi and Aramis had given him. His fist did not stop and did not feel resistance until it had crushed whatever bone was between it and the ground. Paul then gingerly pulled his fist out of the ruin of the gray man's head, terribly careful to not touch any of the sides of the hole he had made. Paul sat back, not looking at his hand, which was wet and hot with blood. He just beat you, you know, said the stone-pravied woman, her voice flat. You gave him what he wanted. Now you know what you have to do to the Alex. Because if you don't, you'll let far more people die. Paul looked at her a long moment. Finally, he turned back to the nearly crushed house for the sound of multiple people calling out for help. 
he had much work to do while he waited for his new employers to arrive and christen him a new god of justice. Crack, 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 crack. Nathan stood with his hands pressed over his ears and his eyes squinted as the dark chamber flashed blue with each shot fired from Bosco's hand cannon. It shot something like a blue laser beam, and the little cylinder in the middle of the gun smoked after each shot. No, it wasn't smoke. The vapor was sinking instead of rising. Nathan got a little closer and saw that the cylinder was covered with frost. It was that weird cold steam that comes out of a freezer on a hot day. Bosco had fired at each of the three hinges and the heavy latch of the last big door barring their way. There had been a bit of fumbling around in the dark, Bosco using a flashlight in his wrist, before Nathan had found his way under the new additions and down to the actual Maybar facility. It was cut straight out of the bedrock, with low ceilings and all sorts of piping running along the ceiling and walls. Bosco grabbed the door and simply moved it to the side, a decidedly understated move after the drama of blasting away its supports with his super gun. Nathan had expected him to climactically shove the door over with a deafening boom of it slamming to the floor. Of course, his ears already heard enough from the gunshots, so it was for the best. They entered the new darkness. Nathan was about to ask Bosco what he was looking for, his wrist flashlight moving all over the place, when his unspoken question was answered by lights turning on as Bosco flipped a switch on the wall. They faced a long hallway... Simple light fixtures dotted along on the left side. It smelled of rust and musk. Just an old, long hallway. But it wasn't that dusty or dirty, which gave Nathan a hint of hope. He wasn't sure if Shiro was down here. From what he knew, he should be. But even if he was, he might not be able to talk. If this was all supposed to be a live updated representation of what was on Earth, then obviously the actual Shiro on actual Earth wouldn't see Nathan walking around here. Except that the crazy ziggurat above, and those skull ghost things, were evidence that something weird was going on. They jogged down the hallway, trying to keep a brisk pace, even though they hadn't heard any noises that would indicate that the gammies were following them. Nathan had a feeling they were waiting for him to walk back out, instead of trying to chase him around this dark labyrinth. That wasn't exactly a comforting thought. Whoa. Bosco, a few paces in front of Nathan, stopped as they came to an intersection. The hall crossing the one they were in was tall and wide and more brightly lit. Well, this is fascinating. Nathan joined him and looked up and down at what only could be called a long-abandoned mall. Clothing shops and restaurants and bookstores and video game shops. There was even a Disney store a hundred yards to the right, with a giant, dusty Buzz Lightyear waving into the wide, empty corridor. It was weird, though, that the waving arm still worked, or that so many of the dust-shrouded lights still worked. But it wasn't dusty enough for eight centuries worth. Nathan found himself giving commentary as they continued on. 
They dug all this out in five years, which is amazing, but then they spent decades just adding more and more space to the assassin. That meant that there were thousands of people living down here. Nathan took a couple wrong turns, ending up in an old maintenance office, then a dead end that seemed to be an unfinished medical center. Finally, they came to the heavy elevator that would take them down to the main chamber. Like everything here, it was worn and old, but operational and not overly dirty. They got in and started the long descent. A previously faint harmony of rumbling and humming grew louder as they went deeper. The taste and feel of the air changed to more metallic. Finally, they reached the bottom. The door opened, and Nathan saw blue light up ahead, blending in with the yellow-white of the fixtures on the wall of the hallway. They started down the hallway, and the hum became greater and greater. The air got warmer and warmer, and then they entered the chamber. Nathan's stomach sunk into his feet, the way it always did when he came in here. The room was over three kilometers long and almost two kilometers wide. He looked up. The ceiling felt so much higher than he remembered. He went dizzy looking at it. Here, engulfed in the sound and vastness of this place, it made his childhood memories of visiting Hoover Dam seem small and insignificant. Crisscrossing all over the ceiling, over a hundred stories above him, was a jumble of cables, some the size of train tunnels, connecting two towers that rose all the way up to the ceiling. The two towers each rose from the center of a ten-armed, starburst-shaped structure that sprawled out in the chamber. The two starburst structures were together like a cluster of high-rises in the downtown of a medium-sized city. There were even train tracks leading into the centers and around the structures, behemoth construction and maintenance equipment sitting on the rails. The starburst arms were each half a kilometer long, a football field across, and speckled with tens of thousands of long, narrow windows, shining neon blue. They rose up much closer to the ceiling than they had the last time Nathan had been down here. Apparently, they'd continued expanding the assassin space even after Nathan had entered Maybar. The two mammoth structures were similar in appearance, despite each having their own particular sedimentary layers of decades of gradual layer additions. But they were very different in what they held and how they worked. The assassin and the world can. Humming, breathing, rumbling, city-sized machines. The world can was the one nearest to the door Nathan had entered through, and the blue light from its windows was scattered and irregular. Bosco did not look impressed. He looked cautious and worried, as much as his metal face could communicate anyway. His big gun was still in his hand, and his eyes slowly scanned the area. Nathan suspected he knew what was making him uncomfortable, though. Excuse me, sir. This is a dangerous area, said a robot walking past him and Bosco, a robot that looked primitive compared to Nathan's companion. The chamber was full of them, hundreds, maybe thousands of robots puttering around, all of them taking tentatively short steps on their awkward legs. Some carried equipment, some operated the maintenance machinery on the train tracks, checking the assassin and the world can 
repairing spots here and there. Bosco grumbled as the one that had reprimanded them continued on its way. He turned to Nathan. Something is wrong with these things. They walked over to green lines painted on the ground with safety line printed between them and every hundred meters or so. He noted how vastly different the way Bosco walked was from the way these robots walked. They had straight bulky frames and blocky heads and moved with rigid deliberateness. Bosco swaggered, his skull-like head hunched between his shoulders to match his brooding personality. What? Nathan finally asked. Because they're old models? Bosco shook his head. It's something else. Nathan led them toward the center of the chamber, which took a while. The maintenance robots didn't seem bothered by them, except when Bosco casually drifted outside of the safety lane when one was nearby. It asked him to leave the dangerous area. Bosco snickered and said, I'm the dangerous area, you idiot janitor. As the two of them curved around the perimeter of the world can's arms, the bulk of the assassin came into view. The lights shining from its arms shone out in regular, tightly packed intervals. The lights. Souls of people. The world can, conversely, held all the information for everything in the worlds of Maybar, including the minds of all animals and artificial intelligences like Bosco. Well, the actual SSN and Worldcan held all that stuff. These were just copies, representations of the actual ones on Earth, just like the monitoring station grid covering the ocean floor of Threshold. Nathan and Bosco stopped as they came around the curve of the Worldcan far enough to see the walkway that cut between the SSN and the Worldcan. There was a man standing there in a worn robe tied with a belt, his hair white and his face wizened. He looked like someone from an old samurai movie. He even was mostly in black and white, with faded white flowers adorning his tattered dark gray robe. There was a workbench pushed up against the side of the assassin, and stretching away from that was a row of multiple bookshelves. The samurai smiled as Nathan got close enough for them to recognize each other. It was Shiro. Hi, Nathan. This is all a lie. Shiro yelled out over the mind-swallowing hum coming from every direction. He swept a hand grandly around him. Then he walked over to the workstation, pushed up against the side of an assassin wing. It was a wooden table with a pegboard behind it, tools and glass vials hanging from hooks. There was all sorts of chemistry-set-looking paraphernalia scattered on one side of the table, the other side had stacks of papers and binders and randomly shaped and sized bottles of ink. Stains of ink and scattered fountain pens were all over both sides of the table. Shiro picked up a little glass cup from the table, which contained a green fluid. He proffered it out to Nathan. But I can turn it off. Let you see what this actually looks like. Temporarily, if you'd like. I would, and it's good to see you. Nathan took the cup and drank the magic potion. It had no taste. It was like drinking water. But the light and humming around him all left in an instant. The chamber was dead and dark, except for a lamp over the workbench. Shiro's workspace was, in fact, the one thing that looked exactly the same. There was also a handful of tiny green lights coming from where Shiro had been standing. Uh, Bosco, what do you see? Two things at once, sir. I had trouble when we first entered. 
Natasha's comment helped me realize what it was. Uh, shine your light on Shiro. Bosco turned his wrist light on again and turned it toward Nathan's friend. Instead of a robed Japanese man standing there, there were two dusty figures that looked like spacesuits with large mirrored visors on the helmets. The little green lights were from status readouts on the chests, but Nathan knew they weren't suits. They were surrogate robot bodies, the kind used so that Maybar residents could do maintenance on the earthbound Maybar machinery. They looked like suits to make it easier for the micro-assassins inside them to trick the brain into thinking the person still had a body and was just in a suit. One was standing in the same place the robed Shiro had stood. It was not like the robots of the lie. It had the nuance and subtle gestures of a human even as it stood still. The other was suspended from cables as if it was a corpse that had been hanged to death. The suit was engulfed in cobwebs. The head slacked to the side and the toes of the limp legs barely touching the ground. Nathan felt himself shiver as he looked up the length of the twisted cables running out of the base of the neck at the back of the helmet like a noose, which extended upward into the darkness of the ceiling. Where do those cables go? Bosco shined his light up, following the cables to the ceiling. They wrapped around and spliced into the heavy cables up there that connected the world can to the assassin. Nathan pointed at the cobweb-covered figure as Bosco brought the light back down. Who is that? Shiro, or the suit body containing him, gestured to the hanging body. This is, or was, Ife Onweume, and she is Maybar.